Welcome once again to the Questioning Christianity podcast back on the internet for another episode. Uh, I'm Dan McClellan. I'm sitting at my table with my gourds and my cornucopia. Joining me via Zoom, sipping on his pumpkin spice latte, is Dr. Rob Helton. Rob, what's up, man? Hey, everybody. How you doing, Dan? I'm all right. Happy fall. You too. Wow. Fall kind of snuck up on us a little bit. Yeah, it did. This has been a, a strange year, to say the least. And uh, mm. in some ways, it feels like it's gone on forever, and then it's, uh, it's flying by. Hey, I saw a picture of your uh, hummingbird vine and birdhouse. And post. Oh, yeah. That's pretty impressive. That was. It's very nice. I thought uh, I wasn't expecting the vine to be so full, you know, like it's yeah. already up the post. Did it, I mean, it that's the, yeah, I don't know what I want to do with it because it's going to take over the, the birdhouse. We're going to have to cut it back over the winter, I guess. I feel like I think we talked about that in our last episode, so I wanted everyone to uh, to have an update on how. Yeah, well we've got to have. Yeah, we need to do a hummingbird vine update segment. <laughs> All right. So uh, in this episode, we want to talk about the topic of unity, and um, we want to focus sort of on the first couple of verses of Philippians chapter two, where Paul talks about unity and uh, and what that means, and and obviously it feels like we are in the middle of whatever the opposite of unity is uh, right now, um, whether that's in the <laughs> church or in our nation, um, and especially with uh, the election season coming up, um, everything feels very polarized and divisive. So I, I think we could use a little bit of unity. So I hope that uh, yeah. over the course of the next uh, few minutes or so that we're able to uh, to come up with some ways that we might be able to to uh, improve the unity, at least in the church and, um, you know, in our families and our friend groups and uh, ultimately yeah. the, the whole world. But sure. tell me a little bit about what Paul's saying here in, uh, in Philippians. Who's he talking to and uh, what sorts of disunity issues were they having? We don't have all the details or, or all the insights into the life of this, um, you know, little fledgling church in Philippi, but we know for sure that uh, it would be, you know, very culturally diverse. Uh, you've got people coming from all walks of life into the um, Jesus movement at this point in history. Like if you go back to the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, which is sort of a little uh, story about the launching of the church in Philippi, uh, just in that one chapter, you've got these really, really different people. You've got uh, this business woman named Lydia who uh, becomes a believer. Then you've got a slave girl who was demon possessed before she encountered Jesus. And then you've got a Philippian jailer and his family. These are some of the people who sort of are the charter members of the Philippian Community Church or Philippian City Church, if you want to say it that way. But so obviously, uh, these people are coming at uh, following Jesus from very, very different perspectives. And so when Paul's writing this letter, I think part of his objective is to help them kind of come together and, and be unified. And so he talks about that some here. I guess when Paul was writing this, he didn't put the little numbers uh, in his uh, sentences, like the verses and the chapter numbers. <laughs> so mm -hmm, yeah. sometimes they're in weird places. So chapter two yeah. starts with, therefore, 
so it makes one want to go back and look at the previous um, chapter. But he, in, in, the, in the last verse, before therefore, Paul's talking about um, suffering. So he's talking yeah. about this fledgling church group and says, since you're going through the same struggle that he had, and then he leads into that being united part. So what sort of struggles uh, were, were Paul and, and this diverse uh, young church, what were they experiencing? Well, there again, it's, it's kind of hard to say. Um, you have to sort of put some of the pieces of the puzzle together. What we know about the, the, the city of Philippi is that it was a, a Roman colony, which meant that Rome, it was sort of an intentional um, community. Um, kind of a designed community. Uh, Rome would take these uh, geographically strategic places like Philippi, which was located on um, a main artery, like um, where uh, an army was invading, they would, you know, they would need to use this, this primary artery. And Rome would take those places and populate those places with uh, retired Roman soldiers and their families. And if there was ever any problems, you know, the, the Roman soldiers would have to come out of retirement and protect the city. But they would get a free place to live. They would, be, they would get a land grant and a stipend. So it was a really, you know, it was a really neat deal for a Roman soldier. Uh, but I say all that to say Paul came along and the message of Paul's gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of God that Paul was preaching was our allegiance now is to Jesus. He's our king, and we no longer live in allegiance to Caesar. In fact, um, the hymn in Philippians chapter 2, Paul quotes this hymn that talks about Jesus being exalted to the highest place, and he's been given the name that's above every name, uh, that the name of Jesus, every tongue would confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus is Lord. So these people are, they're literally changing their allegiances. And it's not that they're revolting against Rome, but they just no longer call Caesar Lord. And in certain contexts, that would cause problems. That would cause sufferings. Uh, you might imagine it in this way. If you're a Roman soldier living in Philippi and you've become a follower of Jesus, you've become a Christian, you've been drawn to this, this, this really magnetic message about this person who, instead of killing his enemies to be exalted, he died for his enemies to be exalted. And, and now people are flocking to, to follow him. And you're a Roman soldier and you take your family one day down to watch a, a production at the theater or watch the games, uh, whatever's going on. But before any of those things would have started in a Roman colony, there would be this opportunity for everyone to pay homage to the Caesar, however they would do that, bow or stand uh, to, to pledge allegiance to the Caesar. Well, maybe you haven't even thought about it before you got there, but all of a sudden you, you find yourself in this stadium full of people, most of whom are standing to pledge allegiance to the Caesar. And you look around and you see pockets of your fellow Christians who are not standing. They won't pledge allegiance to Caesar. And you realize, I can't do that either. And so you remain seated or you won't bow or, or whatever, however it was that they would have give tribute to Caesar. And uh, so 
you know, afterwards you're leaving the, the stadium with your family and some of your old Roman soldier buddies come up to you and they say, what's up with this not, you know, not standing in honor of Caesar? You know, what do you do? You say, well, I, I've become a follower of Jesus. And immediately you become the focus of their anger. They Maybe even violence breaks out. May, you may even have to pack up your family and leave this cushy deal that you've got in Philippi with, you know, the land grant and the stipend. And you have to go because your neighbors now are persecuting you, maybe even physical persecution, because you've chosen to follow Jesus. So maybe that's what Paul's talking about. I don't think that's a far-fetched scenario for what some of the some of the people in Philippi may have been encountering. Gotcha. And that's just fascinating how the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, 2,000 <laughs> yeah. years later, we're still having the same sorts of uh, issues about standing and kneeling and all of those yeah. things uh, at the stadium. Yeah. So this group, this church, as a diverse uh, population, um, they are going through some struggles. We are going through some struggles. Um, and often it's these, um, the difficult times that, that seem to do one of two things. They either like, you know, they, they kind of bind us together. We uh, circle the wagon, so to speak, um, or they, they push us apart. And so Paul says in chapter two, verse one, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, then make my joy complete by being like-minded being one in spirit and one of mind. It feels like what's going on right now in the church, in our nation, and perhaps the whole world, is that we are allowing these trials to push us apart. And um, we are not embracing that, um, that which Paul is talking about, being united with Christ. Is that the sense that you yeah. get? What does Paul really mean, I guess, by being united in Christ? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the sense that I get. Um, we see it in every avenue of life, and it, certainly as a pastor, I encounter this a lot. And so uh, I do think that it's worth the conversation to talk about what does it take for Christians to be united, even among within the church itself? What is it that actually brings us together in unity? And I think particularly in the evangelical church, I think we may need to rethink our perspectives on what unites us. What do you mean by that? The translation I have says that if there's any encouragement in Christ, then he goes on to say, you know, be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and with one mind. So I think that what Paul is saying to us in this text and in many others and it's a very, very simple statement, but I think we've forgotten it, and it's a profound statement. The unity of Christians is in Christ. The ancient church fathers had this, this phrase that they used, um, the, the mystical union in Christ, or they might say the mystical union with Christ. And it was a way of connecting with, with this favorite phrase of Paul's, that he used, he used it 164 times in the letters that he wrote in Christ. He used that phrase over and over again, in Christ. So what Paul understood is that 
these Christians were not going to be able to be unified around anything other than Christ himself. In fact, their unity would have to depend on something deeper than anything that they could do through their own, like their own strength, their own power. It had to go to a mystical level. We might say it this way. Their unity was sort of in their spiritual DNA. They were connected by their common mystical union in Christ. And that's what the church of the 21st century has sort of forgotten. I think we're trying to find unity in something besides our common mystical bond in in Jesus. Yeah, I I see that too. And, you know, mysticism is scary to us, you know. Uh, (laughs) So we look for something that's more tangible. You know, let's unite over is this passage literal or figurative or let's unite over the style of music that we uh, that we play or let's unite over whether or not you're supposed to mow your grass on Sunday. Uh, that's kind of a dumb example, but I did get into that conversation with my parents on uh, the other day at lunch. <clears throat> um, yeah, I've mowed my grass on Sunday, so don't don't tell anybody. It's just between us. Okay, cool. <laughs> but yeah, so whenever you unite on, I mean, those things are easier to see. They're more tangible, but I think it sounds like what we're suggesting and what maybe we're we're saying Paul's suggesting is that that unity is not going to last. It's got to be deeper than that. It's got to be this mysterious connection that comes uh, through Christ having, you know, been a part of humanity. Exactly. Otherwise, we don't even need the spirit of Christ. If we're going to find our unity around these other things, then um, then we're actually, we, we could say it this way. This might be a little bit harsh uh, sounding way to say it, but if we're not going to find our unity at this mystical level through the person of Christ himself, then we're really not the church. We're just any other group that gathers together around some kind of common purpose or common objective. If we're going to call ourselves the church, then I think we have to go back to this fundamental principle. Wow. That that's where that's where we're unified. So Paul says, as he's talking about this unity in Christ, uh, to make you know, he's asking these people make his joy complete by being united, by being like-minded, and having the same love, and being one in spirit and mind. Um, mm-hmm. I did a quick Google search, and I couldn't get a a really good answer. But what I saw was that there was over like two hundred denominations in the United mm-hmm. States. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. What what would Paul's joy level be like today? <laughs> I don't even know. I would I, I couldn't even begin to uh, imagine what what Paul would think of the of the um, the modern version of the church. All these denominations, of course, have grown out of some kind of division over something, over theology, or over. You're talking a while ago about you know worship style kind of disagreements or things like that, hopefully the redemptive thing or what we find hope in it, we can still, even though we might call ourselves charismatic or orthodox or, you know, all these different ways of understanding the church, um, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, whatever. Um, and then, of course, even just within Protestantism, like you said, there's lots and lots of different denominations. Hopefully, 
we can still call each other brother and sister because we still acknowledge it's that spiritual DNA that brings us together within the same family. My fear, though, Dan, in, in the world that we live in now is that the things that we're passionate about, we've put them, put that, whatever it is that we're passionate about in the position of like the head where Christ should be. And then naturally, then we're trying to gather people around us that make that thing that we're passionate about the unifying factor. For instance, our political ideologies and the evangelical church uh, seems to have a very well-defined political ideology. They either include people or exclude people based on whether or not they adhere to that particular political ideology. And so the church is being fragmented and fractured because that's what we've made our basis of unity. Let's walk back just a little bit because there has got to be, even with unity, there has got to be room for disagreements. You know, we, we have the cliche, like, agree to disagree. Yeah. So I'm thinking, like, it's okay to have all of these different denominations. It's probably okay for us to choose to, to worship in, you know, with groups of sort of like-minded people, as long as, like what you said, that's not the priority. That's not the focus or the, like the head of the thing. There has to be room for disagreements. I, all right, so here's my question. How can you be united and yet disagree? Yeah. Well, and I guess that's where this whole mystical union thing comes, comes into play. Your basis of unity cannot be your agreement with one another. It has to go deeper than that. I'll give you an example from my childhood, okay? My older sister, she was like six, seven years older than me. And we very literally fought with one another <laughs> almost all the time. For whatever reason, as charming as I am, <laughs> I, was not, I was not her favorite person. Now, I have to admit, you know, I infringed on her privacy. I didn't understand why it was that, you know, she didn't want me to go snooping around in her bedroom and looking through her diary. I thought that was a reasonable thing to do, but for whatever reason, she didn't like that. And she was bigger than me. I mean, and she would like beat me up and things like that and tell me that she hated me. And, and we, we had absolutely nothing in common. She was a bookworm. I didn't read a book until I was, you know, out of high school. She liked all the things that I didn't care anything about. We had absolutely nothing in common. We disagreed about everything that you could possibly disagree about. And our parents were constantly just refereeing our fights that we had. So I, I lay all that groundwork to tell you that on my first day of school, as a kindergartner, the school bus came. And so we got on the school bus. Now this was back in the day when, you know, all grades rode the same school bus. I don't know if that was the way it was when you were a, a little kid or not, Dan. Yeah, I, I just uh, assumed that you had to walk uphill in snow. Um, no, that was my dad. I, I, <laughs> he, he had to walk to school in the, in the snow year round uphill both ways. But um, but me, I had to ride the school bus with seniors that are, that were getting ready to graduate. And I was in kindergarten. And, and so my sister would have been in about the sixth grade or so, fifth or sixth grade on the school bus. There's this dude 
who has the brightest red hair I've ever seen in my life. And he had it cut in a flat top. Do you remember flat top? I had a flat you know? top. Seriously. Yeah. Cool. My respect for you has all has gone up. <laughs> it was uh, it was right after my uh, my rat tail phase. I cut the rat tail <laughs> off and then yeah. went with a flat yeah. top. Yeah. So anyway, and they called this guy Red for obvious reasons, but um, and he was mean as a snake, and so immediately he, for whatever reasons, he focused in on me and he begins to pick on me, and it was not just you know you know, a little bit and then leaves me alone. He, he, he just keeps on doing these things that, uh, seniors in high school, by the way, I think he failed a couple grades. I think he was like in his early twenties or something. And, <laughs> and, you know, he's still continuing to, to pick on me. And all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye, I see this blur come across and it was my sister. She dives on this guy and, I mean, she just tears into this guy, tooth and claw. He's bleeding. She's, you know, just scratching his eyeballs out. <laughs> and she puts him in his place, and he leaves me alone from that point on. So what's the whole point of this conversation, <laughs> this story? Well, there is something powerful <laughs> about common DNA. and uh, The old saying, blood is thicker than water. And my sister, as much as she disliked me and, and her self-proclaimed disdain for me, <laughs> um, there was a mystical bond, you know, w- between me and, my, me and my sister. So there's something like that that we have to seek after in our relationship with other Christians and in our relationship within humankind. Mm-hmm. We're all created in God's image. And so there's something at a very deep level that, that unites us that goes deeper than our ideologies, goes deeper than even our interpretation of Scripture. It's that common, that, that mystical union that supersedes everything else. And, and we have to go to that. We have to seek after that to, to find our unity. Or, or we have to acknowledge that that's what unifies us. I love you that still? story about your sister. I was, I was kind of the, uh, the older brother, um, so that resonates with me. But what are some, some small ways that we can actually do that, like tap into that unity, look past the differences? How can we, as people who are trying to live out this life in the way that Christ teaches us, how can we uh, blur a, you know, from one side of the bus to the other and tear into red? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know if there's any like um, easy answers to that question, Dan. What I've seen is that as siblings grow, they get older and they become more mature. That bond is what sort of um, becomes more and more prominent in their lives. You usually don't see two 40 year old siblings fighting with one another like they did when they were 10 years old. So one fundamental thing that we're looking for here is just simple spiritual development, spiritual growth, so that you know more and more as we develop and as we grow as Christians, we're just more mature and we don't divide over these things that we're trying to use to, to unite us. 
I think that spiritual formation, what we used to call discipleship, or the theological term for it is sanctification, this day after day after day development in character from following Jesus, I think that's one thing that we need to be working at. And the way that we know that that we're moving in a positive direction is when, you know, when you're working on that and you're making some progress, you can actually sit down with a person who disagrees with you and you can have a civil conversation and sometimes walk away without having convinced one another that your way is right and still love one another and get along with one another and, you know, be together. Do you think we can do this too with people who don't, um, you know, who, who aren't in Christ? Is there a way to develop our um, unity with, with folks who don't follow Jesus? I think so. Um, I was reading an article the other day in uh, Christianity Today about, you know, interfaith conversations between people of the Christian faith and people of the Muslim faith. Like I said a minute ago, even those who don't think of themselves as Christians, we still have a bond with those people as well because we're all human beings, and human beings are all created in the image of God. The Imago Dei, we, we carry the image of God in us, and so that is what we need to look to to find unity. But I think Christians should be, instead of Christians being so divisive with one another, Christians should be setting the example for the rest of the world of people who can, you know, have unity despite their disagreements and their differences. And, and we seem to not be getting at that very well. I really like that explanation. The idea of this unity in Christ being something that's programmed into humanity. So, um, and that's sort of changed the way, you know, I'm thinking about it since I asked that question. It's like uh, your sister, uh, you guys have the same DNA, and so that can be what unites you. And so the same sort of thing can happen for humanity. I guess my question then is, you know, we've got a small group of people who listen to this podcast who are wrestling with some of these things and are trying to develop themselves or, you know, become better disciples. You know, we're all, you know, taking a step forward and a couple steps back on this journey, but can this small group of us, is there any way we can actually make a dent in the divisiveness that seems to be so pervasive right now in our nation and in the world? Yeah, I think it's like everything else. It, you know, it starts small. We have to look for the small victories. Um, but one thing that we can do is just within our own relationships, our own conversations, like um, you know, Facebook is such a volatile place. That's, that's a really good example of a place that you can start. Just don't get sucked in to the divisiveness with your friends on Facebook, you know, the theological arguments or the political arguments. Just kind of refuse to go down that road. I wouldn't have any kind of conversations about divisive things on social media, period. You know, seek out someone that you disagree with that is a friend uh, uh, or, or just an acquaintance and say, and just say to them, you know, I would really like to have a conversation with someone who can share their perspective with me. I want to hear that perspective. And then I want to be able to share my perspective with you. 
and see if there's a way that we can do that and then walk away from this conversation without being angry with one another. Just start there. I've tried to do that with a friend or two of mine. Yeah, I I love that advice. And if you go back and read the rest of Philippians chapter two, beyond what we've been talking about in this episode, Paul then goes on to talk about um, one way to do that is in humility, valuing others above yourselves. And it gives the example of Jesus. And so um, winning arguments or um, winning debates is not necessarily, or is actually not at all a posture of humility. And so yeah. uh, maybe that's an opportunity, you know, maybe challenge yourself, lose the next five arguments on purpose um, <laughs> as a demonstration of humility and, um, and tapping into that, uh, that unity in Christ. Uh, the, uh, yeah. I think the humility thing is, is, is huge in this whole thing. It really is. And, I think if we could just come back to that idea of our mystical union in Christ and just to know that our unity goes beyond ourselves. It's in this person that everyone in the Christian community claims as Lord. Uh, we claim to follow this person. You know, start there. I think that would be a good thing to do. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think. You can reach out to us through our website, questioningchristianitypodcast.com, or through social media, facebook.com slash questioningchristianity is a good way to, uh, to get a hold of us or post a question or provide some feedback. Um, let us know uh, what you think about this topic. If you have some suggestions for how we can improve the unity um, in our part of the world, um, and we'll pass those along next time we talk. Uh, Rob, I enjoyed it, man. I think this is a great conversation. And I think like this idea of like this mystical union is something that I haven't heard a lot before, you know, and growing up and, you know, kind of a Protestant upbringing. I I think I said earlier, mysticism sort of scares us. So this is one of those that we can really challenge ourselves to step into um, this week, I think, and, uh, and try to embrace that unity based on our common DNA. So I appreciate you sharing. And um, I think that will wrap it up for this episode. So until next time, he's Rob Helton. I'm Dan McClellan, and we'll see you on the next Questioning Christianity podcast. Mm -hmm.